Volume Three, Part One of Herodotus's Histories. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rachel Klippenstein. Histories, Volume Three, by Herodotus of Halicarnassus, translated by E. D. Godley, Part One. When the message concerning the fight at Marathon came to Darius, son of Hystaspes, already greatly angry against the Athenians for their attack upon Sardis, he was now much more angry and eager to send an expedition against Hellas. Immediately he sent messengers to all the cities and commanded them to equip an army, instructing each to provide many more ships and horses and provisions and transport vessels than they had before. Asia was in commotion with these messages for three years as the best men were enrolled for service against Hellas, and made preparations. In the fourth year the Egyptians, whom Cambyses had enslaved, revolted from the Persians. Thereupon Darius was even more eager to send expeditions against both. But while Darius was making preparations against Egypt and Athens, a great quarrel arose among his sons concerning the chief power in the land. They held that before his army marched he must declare an heir to the kingship according to Persian law. Three sons had been born to Darius before he became king by his first wife, the daughter of Gobrius, and four more after he became king by Atossa, daughter of Cyrus. Artobazanes was the oldest of the earlier sons, Xerxes of the later, and as sons of different mothers they were rivals. Artobazanes pleaded that he was the oldest of all Darius's offspring, and that it was everywhere customary that the eldest should rule. Xerxes argued that he was the son of Cyrus's daughter Atossa, and that it was Cyrus who had won the Persians their freedom. While Darius delayed making his decision, it chanced that at this time Demaratus, son of Ariston, had come up to Susa, in voluntary exile from Lacedaemonia, after he had lost the kingship of Sparta. Learning of the contention between the sons of Darius, this man, as the story goes, came and advised Xerxes to add this to what he said, that he had been born when Darius was already king and ruler of Persia, but Artobazanes when Darius was yet a subject. Therefore it was neither reasonable nor just that anyone should have the royal privilege before him. At Sparta, too, advised Demaratus, it was customary that if sons were born before their father became king, and another son born later when the father was king, the succession to the kingship belongs to the later-born. Xerxes followed Demaratus's advice, and Darius judged his plea to be just, and declared him king. But to my thinking, Xerxes would have been made king even without this advice, for Atossa held complete sway. After declaring Xerxes king, Darius was intent on his expedition, but in the year after this and the revolt of Egypt, death came upon him in the midst of his preparations, after a reign of six and thirty years in all, and it was not granted to him to punish either the revolted Egyptians or the Athenians. After Darius's death, the royal power descended to his son Xerxes. Now Xerxes was at first by no means eager to march against Hellas. It was against Egypt that he mustered his army. But Mardonius, son of Gobrius, Xerxes' cousin and the son of Darius's sister, was with the king, and had more influence with him than any Persian. He argued as follows, Master, it is not fitting that the Athenians should go unpunished for their deeds, after all the evil they have done to the Persians. For now you should do what you have in hand. Then, when you have tamed the insolence of Egypt, lead your armies against Athens, so that you may have fair fame among men, and others may beware of invading your realm in the future. This argument was for vengeance, but he kept adding that Europe was an extremely beautiful land, one that bore all kinds of orchard-trees, a land of highest excellence, worthy of no mortal master but the king. 
He said this because he desired adventures and wanted to be governor of Hellas. Finally he worked on Xerxes and persuaded him to do this. And other things happened that helped him to persuade Xerxes. Messengers came from Thessaly from the Eleuadae, who were princes of Thessaly, and invited the king into Hellas with all earnestness. The Pisistradae, who had come up to Susa, used the same pleas as the Eleuadae, offering Xerxes even more than they did. They had come up to Sardis with Onomacritus, an Athenian diviner who had set in order the oracles of Musaeus. They had reconciled their previous hostility with him. Onomacritus had been banished from Athens by Pisistratus's son Hipparchus, when he was caught by Lassus of Hermione in the act of interpolating into the writings of Musaeus an oracle, showing that the islands off Lemnos would disappear into the sea. Because of this Hipparchus banished him, though they had previously been close friends. Now he had arrived at Susa with the Pisistradae, and whenever he came into the king's presence they used lofty words concerning him, and he recited from his oracles. All that portended disaster to the Persian he left unspoken, choosing and reciting such prophecies as were most favorable, telling how the Hellespont must be bridged by a man of Persia, and describing the expedition. So he brought his oracles to bear, while the Pisistradae and Eleodai gave their opinions. After being persuaded to send an expedition against Hellas, Xerxes first marched against the rebels in the year after Darius's death. He subdued them, and laid Egypt under a much harder slavery than in the time of Darius, and he handed it over to Achaemenes, his own brother and Darius's son. While governing Egypt, this Achaemenes was at a later time slain by a Libyan, Inaros, son of Psammeticus. After the conquest of Egypt, intending now to take in hand the expedition against Athens, Xerxes held a special assembly of the noblest among the Persians, so he could learn their opinions and declare his will before them all. When they were assembled, Xerxes spoke to them as follows. Men of Persia, I am not bringing in and establishing a new custom, but following one that I have inherited. As I learned from our elders, we have never yet remained at peace, ever, since Cyrus deposed Astyages, and we won this sovereignty from the Medes. It is the will of heaven, and we ourselves win advantage by our many enterprises. No one needs to tell you, who will already know them well, which nations Cyrus and Cambyses and Darius my father subdued and added to our realm. Ever since I came to this throne, I have considered how I might not fall short of my predecessors in this honor, and not add less power to the Persians. And my considerations persuade me that we may win not only renown, but a land neither less nor worse, and more fertile, than that which we now possess, and we would also gain vengeance and requital. For this cause I have now summoned you together, that I may impart to you what I intend to do. It is my intent to bridge the Hellespont and lead my army through Europe to Hellas, so that I may punish the Athenians for what they have done to the Persians and to my father. You saw that Darius my father was set on making an expedition against these men, but he is dead, and it was not granted to him to punish them. On his behalf, and that of all the Persians, I will never rest until I have taken Athens and burnt it, for the unprovoked wrong that its people did to my father and me. First they came to Sardis with our slave Aristagoras the Milesian, and burnt the groves and the temples. Next, how they dealt with us when we landed on their shores, when Datis and Artaphernes were our generals, I suppose you all know. For these reasons I am resolved to send an army against them, and I reckon that we will find the following benefits among them. If we subdue those men, and their neighbors who dwell in the land of Pelops the Phrygian, we will make the borders of Persian territory and of the firmament of heaven be the same. No land that the sun beholds will border ours, but I will make all into one country when I have passed over the whole of Europe. I learn that this is the situation. No city of men or any human nation which is able to meet us in battle will be left, 
if those of whom I speak are taken out of our way. Thus the guilty and the innocent will alike bear the yoke of slavery. This is how you would best please me. When I declare the time for your coming, every one of you must eagerly appear, and whoever comes with his army best equipped will receive from me such gifts as are reckoned most precious among us. Thus it must be done. But so that I not seem to you to have my own way, I lay the matter before you all, and bid whoever wishes to declare his opinion. So spoke Xerxes, and ceased. After him Mardonius said, Master, you surpass not only all Persians that have been, but also all that shall be. Besides having dealt excellently and truly with all other matters, you will not suffer the Ionians who dwell in Europe to laugh at us, which they have no right to do. It would be strange indeed if we who have subdued and made slaves of Sakai and Indians and Ethiopians and Assyrians and many other great nations, for no wrong done to the Persians but of mere desire to add to our power, will not take vengeance upon the Greeks for unprovoked wrongs. What have we to fear from them? Have they a massive population or abundance of wealth? Their manner of fighting we know, and we know how weak their power is. We have conquered and hold their sons, those who dwell in our land and are called Ionians and Aeolians and Dorians. I myself have made trial of these men when by your father's command I marched against them. I marched as far as Macedonia and almost to Athens itself, yet none came out to meet me in battle. Yet the Greeks are accustomed to wage wars, as I learn, and they do it most senselessly in their wrong-headedness and folly. When they have declared war against each other, they come down to the fairest and most level ground that they can find, and fight there, so that the victors come off with great harm. Of the vanquished I say not so much as a word, for they are utterly destroyed. Since they speak the same language, they should end their disputes by means of heralds or messengers, or by any way rather than fighting. If they must make war upon each other, they should each discover where they are in the strongest position, and make the attempt there. The Greek custom, then, is not good, and when I marched as far as the land of Macedonia, it had not come into their minds to fight. But against you, O king, who shall make war? You will bring the multitudes of Asia, and all your ships. I think there is not so much boldness in Hellas as that. But if time should show me wrong in my judgment, and those men prove foolhardy enough to do battle with us, they would be taught that we are the greatest warriors on earth. Let us leave nothing untried." For nothing happens by itself, and all men's gains are the fruit of adventure. Thus Mardonius smoothed Xerxes' resolution, and stopped. The rest of the Persians held their peace, not daring to utter any opinion contrary to what had been put forward. Then Artabanus, son of Histaspes, the king's uncle, spoke. Relying on his position, he said, O king, if opposite opinions are not uttered, it is impossible for someone to choose the better. The one which has been spoken must be followed. If they are spoken, the better can be found, just as the purity of gold cannot be determined by itself. But when gold is compared to gold by rubbing, we then determine the better. Now, I advise Darius, your father and my brother, not to leave his army against the Scythians, who have no cities anywhere to dwell in. But he hoped to subdue the nomadic Scythians, and would not obey me. He went on the expedition, and returned after losing many gallant men from his army. You, O king, are proposing to lead your armies against far better men than the Scythians men who are said to be excellent warriors by sea and land. It is right that I should show you what danger there is in this. You say that you will bridge the Hellespont and march your army through Europe to Hellas. Now suppose you happen to be defeated either by land or by sea, or even both. The men are said to be valiant, and we may well guess that it is so, since the Athenians alone destroyed the great army that followed Datis and Artaphernes to Attica. Suppose they do not succeed in both ways. But if they attack with their ships and prevail in a sea-fight, 
than sail to the Hellespont and destroy your bridge. That, O king, is the hour of peril. It is from no wisdom of my own that I thus conjecture. It is because I know what disaster once almost overtook us, when your father, making a highway over the Thracian Bosporus and bridging the river Ister, crossed over to attack the Scythians. At that time the Scythians used every means of entreating the Ionians, who had been charged to guard the bridges of the Ister, to destroy the way of passage. If Histiaeus, the tyrant of Miletus, had consented to the opinion of the other tyrants instead of opposing it, the power of Persia would have perished. Yet it is dreadful even in the telling that one man should hold in his hand all the king's fortunes. So do not plan to run the risk of any such danger when there is no need for it. Listen to me instead. For now dismiss this assembly, consider the matter by yourself, and whenever you so please declare what seems best to you. A well-laid plan is always to my mind most profitable. Even if it is thwarted later, the plan was no less good, and it is only chance that has baffled the design. But if fortune favor one who has planned poorly, then he has gotten only a prize of chance, and his plan was no less bad. You see how the god smites with his thunderbolt creatures of greatness and does not suffer them to display their pride, while little ones do not move him to anger. And you see how it is always on the tallest buildings and trees that his bolts fall, for the god loves to bring low all things of surpassing greatness. Thus a large army is destroyed by a smaller, when the jealous god sends panic or the thunderbolt among them, and they perish unworthily, for the god suffers pride in none but himself. Now haste is always the parent of failure, and great damages are likely to arise. But in waiting there is good, and in time this becomes clear, even though it does not seem so in the present. This, O king, is my advice to you. But you, Mardonius son of Gobrius, cease your foolish words about the Greeks, for they do not deserve to be maligned. By slandering the Greeks you incite the king to send this expedition. That is the end to which you press with all eagerness. Let it not be so. Slander is a terrible business. There are two in it who do wrong, and one who suffers wrong. The slanderer wrongs another by accusing an absent man, and the other does wrong in that he is persuaded before he has learned the whole truth. The absent man does not hear what is said of him, and suffers wrong in the matter, being maligned by the one and condemned by the other. If an army must by all means be sent against these Greeks, hear me now. Let the king himself remain in the Persian land, and let us two stake our children's lives upon it. You lead out the army, choosing whatever men you wish, and taking as great an army as you desire. If the king's fortunes fare as you say, let my sons be slain, and myself with them. But if it turns out as I foretell, let your sons be so treated, and you likewise if you return. But if you are unwilling to submit to this, and will at all hazards lead your army overseas to Hellas, then I think that those left behind in this place will hear that Mardonius has done great harm to Persia, and has been torn apart by dogs and birds in the land of Athens or of Lacedaemon, if not even before that on the way there, and that you have learned what kind of men you persuade the king to attack. Thus spoke Artabanus. Xerxes answered angrily, Artabanus, you are my father's brother. That will save you from receiving the fitting reward of foolish words. But for your cowardly lack of spirit, I lay upon you this disgrace, that you will not go with me and my army against Hellas, but will stay here with the women. I myself will accomplish all that I have said, with no help from you. May I not be the son of Darius, son of Histaspes, son of Arsamis, son of Ariaramnes, son of Taspes, son of Cyrus, son of Cambyses, son of Taspes, son of Achaemenes, if I do not have vengeance on the Athenians? I well know that if we remain at peace, they will not. They will assuredly invade our country, if we may infer from what they have done already, for they burnt Sardis and marched into Asia. 
It is not possible for either of us to turn back. To do or to suffer is our task, so that what is ours be under the Greeks, or what is theirs under the Persians. There is no middle way in our quarrel. Honor then demands that we avenge ourselves for what has been done to us. Thus will I learn what is this evil that will befall me when I march against these Greeks, men that even Pelops the Phrygian, the slave of my forefathers, did so utterly subdue that to this day they and their country are called by the name of their conqueror. End of Volume 1, Part 1